0: You're listening to WALT.
1: Homegrown.
0: Homemade radio. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. If you've been listening to the show since our first season, you probably figured out that my parents are no longer married, and that their divorce and the circumstances surrounding it, are a wound that I carry. I know it's hardly the most serious wound that a person can suffer, but that doesn't change the fact that when it all went down, it was extremely painful for me. It reordered my understanding of how the world worked and how relationships were supposed to work. It left me with questions I'm still sorting through to this day. But recently, I met someone with what felt to me like a radical perspective on divorce. Gratitude.
2: All I can say is that I'm glad. You know, I'm glad that my parents didn't kind of just hold on through my whole childhood. That's Ian Koss. He's a radio reporter and producer, and he
0: has been reflecting on his parents' relationship a lot recently because he's been working on a documentary about divorce. But not just divorce as a general concept. You see, divorce is, well, it's sort of Ian's
2: family ghost. Seven years ago, I asked my partner Kelsey if she would marry me. I did that despite the fact that every living member of my family who had ever been married had also gotten divorced. My parents All my aunts and uncles on both sides, my only living great-uncle, my only living grandparent, not to mention some of my great-grandparents, all had been married, and all had been divorced. Some of them twice.
0: So how did Ian reach this place of gratitude for his parents' separation? And does his own marriage stand a chance? And what is it exactly that we're even hoping for when we make a lifetime commitment to a person? Those are just a few of the questions that Ian explores in his new podcast, Forever is a Long Time, which just came out a couple weeks ago. And when I heard it, I found it completely engrossing, not to mention harrowing, intense, and very moving. So today on the show, I'm going to play you the first episode of Forever is a Long Time, as well as a conversation I had with Ian about the mind-bending process of reporting on your own family, something that still bewilders me no matter how many times I do it. Sorry about that, family. But as Ian reminded me, no matter how gnarly it gets, it never fails to produce revelations that you never saw coming.
2: In so many cases, it really seems like the marriage was the mistake and the divorce was the the better decision of the two. (laughs) From WALT-FM
0: and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. After the break, Ian Koss presents Forever is a Long Time, Part 1, Ellen and Tom. We'll be right back.
2: My name is Ian Koss. And what you're listening to is a collection of songs and conversations about every marriage in my family that ended in divorce, which is most of them. Part one, my parents, Ellen and Tom. So in, um, in uh, I guess, full disclosure, I'll tell you that um, I already talked to my dad on this subject. Yeah? Hello? Hello? Hey there, it's me. But the, the reason I tell you that, I thought it was funny that, you know, when I broached the topic...
3: You're sort of uh, doing sort of
2: something on divorce? You two had totally opposite reactions.
4: Oh, I'm sure.
2: You know, this this is really an awkward topic for me, <laughs> Ian. <laughs> I'm sure. That
4: doesn't surprise
2: me. Maybe this is not surprising to you, but... Um, Quite honestly. You know, his response was you know it's
3: like i'm 60 years old and i really haven't figured this stuff out
2: really you want to talk about what (laughs) yeah and uh and your response was all right name the place and time so
4: yeah also i think that you know don't forget he went through a divorce as a kid yeah and and i mean the ugliest of ugly and i didn't
3: i don't know
2: well, can I ask I, uh, you some questions, and you can um, you can just let me know.
4: I think that he and I both have really different points of view on the, on on the whole mess, right? If you will.
3: I just I, I I should say before we start that I I like to be candid in my answers, and I don't know if I can really do that, which is you know I don't know how useful that is.
2: parents divorced when I was eight years old. I was young enough that I don't have a lot of clear memories of what happened, but old enough that I was definitely watching and listening and learning from what was happening. I think that's why I pushed to have this conversation, even when I knew that parts of it would be ugly, and even when my dad made it pretty clear he did not want to talk about it. I felt like I had a right to know to know consciously at least the lessons and examples that I had almost certainly internalized as a little kid. Let me tell you a little bit about my parents, stuff that you won't pick up just by hearing their voices today They live about 10 miles away from each other in two small towns of western Massachusetts. My father, Tom, is a farrier, which is the person who puts shoes on horses. He drives a truck with a forge in the back that's hot enough to melt solid iron. My mother, Ellen, used to work as a paramedic in town. Then she taught 8th grade science, and to this day... I will meet former students of hers who tell me that she is the best teacher they've ever had. I take these things for granted, like I think most children take their parents' lives for granted. It's easy to forget that in all likelihood, none of these things would be true if my parents had never met and had two children, my brother and I. You know, in a lot of families, this sort of like, how did your parents meet is a a familiar topic of conversation, something that's part of the family lore, but it was never part of our family lore. I don't even think I know uh, how you guys met.
4: Oh, well. Tom had been working in Hinsdale, New Hampshire.
3: And then I rode my bicycle down from there.
4: And he was out of a job. and
3: I would say that I was a little bit at loose ends at that point in my life.
4: And actually, I knew Eric.
3: My brother had gotten a job at uh, Friends World College in Huntington, Long Island.
4: The uh, creepy dorms were up top, and those were the ones that had been put there back uh, during the Cold War.
3: I think I might have gotten some kind of job to do some maintenance work on the building.
4: What it boils down to is that there were these wacky army barracks that looked like they'd been put up in about 10 minutes.
3: And at that time, your mother returned from Kenya.
4: And a little bit extra crazy, because I'd really gone, I mean, I'd been gone for two years.
3: And she had gotten a very bad strain of malaria.
4: Oh, you know, high fever, vomiting. um,
3: I think she was a little delirious in some way.
4: (laughs) Oh, I I still had it.
3: You know, it's episodic and it it comes and goes and... It it isn't pretty. She came back and she stayed in that house where I was staying.
4: And the first day I met him, he had turned up in my kitchen, the way I looked at it.
3: (laughs) And uh, she kind of made the first move, as I recall.
4: And he was eating this just absolutely magnificent sandwich. And he held up half of the sandwich and said, are you hungry? Would you like some?
3: That's how we met.
2: Okay, you don't have to go into the carnal details here, but... um,
3: Okay. Well, it it was kind of romantic. They had a fireplace there in the room, and it it was just, you know, it was kind of a nice place.
4: The thing about Tom. And me is that we actually have a ton of stuff in common despite being so different
3: we hung out we got to know each other and then
4: there was this one fateful night
3: oh the rest is history she announced to me that she was pregnant
2: Up to this point, my parents' narrative of events and their feelings about those events mostly agree. They met, they hung out, and without meaning to, they conceived a child. My older brother, Sebastian. Eventually, of course, their stories do begin to diverge. But it's not just a matter of two people telling stories to make themselves look good. It's two people who, long before they got divorced and long before they got married... We're already seeing their relationship through the lens of very different past experiences. The experiences that they had grown up with. I'm curious what, you know, at that time in your life, what I guess what was the what was the model in your mind of of how marriage was supposed to work? Did it did as an institution, did it feel valuable or meaningful to you?
4: Well, so with me, yes, Um, but it was also something that had been used as a weapon.
3: My parents are like textbook of what divorced parents should not do, you know, which is to basically make war on your ex and put what salt in the soil you know the the way the romans did in carthage you know i mean it it was just a never ending nonstop war and you know i think that that's a lot of what drew your mother and me together also is that we you know we both had really troubled relationships with our fathers i mean your mother was just furious at her father for being a drunk and for just you know Pissing away his talents the way that he did—it just like really infuriated her.
4: And my dad, you know, was really on a really bad downward spiral from the time I was born, say maybe when I was fourteen or fifteen. So my my mom, anytime she was stressed, um, so my mom would take me out in the car and drive around and explain to me how I was a mistake and she hadn't planned to have me, and that um, she had been planning to leave my father, and she would laugh wryly, you know, one of these days you're going to come home and I'm not going to be here. It's going to be just you and your dad. And, um, so you think if you it.
2: hadn't been what? born, your mother would have divorced your father?
4: Oh, yeah. You know, she had kind of put things in motion, and then wham, she got pregnant.
2: And at that, because at that point, your—I mean, your siblings were practically out of the house. They were like well into high school.
4: Paul was fifteen, going on sixteen. Yeah, yeah.
2: And then you came along.
4: Yeah, you know, and she really felt like that was the time. And so, I guess for me, like, I was the generation where every single one of my friends, their parents, got divorced before we were out of high school. But and that was new, that was yeah. super new. So these are uh, the you know that uh, that was the first wave, and I remember being like, like partially proud that my family had managed to stay together and partially horrified, you know, because, I mean, they it, it, it did they did such a bad job being there with one another.
3: Yeah, so I think we were both wounded in some ways.
2: I'm curious how that conversation went when she told you she was pregnant with my brother.
3: Uh, you know, I don't have a real great memory. His immediate response was
4: that I should to get an abortion.
3: My father found out about it, and his immediate response was to get rid of it, you know, because he was convinced that, that your mother was trying to take advantage of me somehow or something.
4: So that kind of, that was sort of the first chink.
3: Your mother decided she was going to keep the pregnancy, and she told me, you can either come with me or or not, but either way, I'm going to keep this baby. And
4: My thought was, well, you know, that's fine. If you don't want to do this, I'll go my way, and you can go your way. And for whatever reason, that wasn't okay with him.
3: I don't have any recollection of having the instinct of bolting, you know,
4: and I kept expecting him to leave.
3: And she made it very clear to me that, that there wouldn't be any consequences for me if I did, you know?
4: You know, I, I just, I knew it was going to end badly.
3: And I decided to, to come with her and to stick around.
2: Keep going with the story, then you go to Tennessee, Sebastian's born, you wind up back in Massachusetts. I'm born uh-huh. at what point did and
3: you were also unplanned right I don't know if your mother ever told you that or not <laughs> oh
2: for two. I guess maybe my the thing the next thing I'm curious about is when did the idea of getting married? enter the conversation? Because I was at your wedding. I mean, I was already born. I was a couple years old. When did the conversation start? Oh, I guess we should get married.
1: Uh,
3: you should probably ask your mother that.
2: <laughs> so it, it, was her, it, uh, it was her idea.
3: Totally her idea.
4: So we talked about it and decided that for tax purposes it would be more sensible if we got married.
3: You know, I was perfectly content to live in sin. But your mother really wanted us to be married.
4: It wasn't. There was no proposal. There was no, <laughs> I love you, and none of that stuff. Um I bought my own ring. Yeah, that's how that happened.
3: We did that, and then, I don't know, maybe three, four years, or even less after that. I mean, we barely
4: were married for two years. It was like 18 months.
3: She ask for a divorce. So,
4: I mean, I I never understood why Tom stayed with me. I really didn't. I mean, it was always a mystery to me because I don't think he ever loved me. He never said so.
3: Mm -hmm. I think that she would tell you that I didn't love her and that I was just sticking around to, to, to be with you guys. And there's probably some truth to that.
4: And, I, and there were times I wondered was you know, like late at night, whether he was coming home. And I'm sure that there were times when he was thinking to himself, shit, if I just keep driving, <laughs> it would be easier that way, you know?
3: But I never would have ended it because I didn't want to put you and Sebastian through what, what, what I went through, you know, even if the marriage was not ideal.
4: But I just knew that I was hurting him and he was hurting me. And that despite the fact that we had two beautiful children together, we would be better apart. Yeah. And I was really sure of it.
3: And your mother told me she wanted to end the marriage. I was not expecting that.
4: He went completely bonkers.
3: I mean, now, now we're, we're getting into, like, stuff that's a little uncomfortable.
4: We agreed that we would not get lawyers.
3: You know, it's like he said, she said. and
4: You know, he wanted a lot of stuff.
3: You know, I mean, divorce is never a pretty thing.
4: Like, this is a little weird.
3: You know, we had that bump in the road when, when she took out a restraining order.
4: We got into a pretty serious physical altercation.
3: Your mom and I had a fight about something. And
4: I called the police.
3: And I, in the heat of the moment and, and you know, not being very smart, I put my finger on the button, you know, and said, no, don't call the cops.
4: That was bad.
3: And I got in my truck and I, was, I remember stopping. There was a payphone, and calling her, you know, and saying, I hope everything's cool and everything, and, but apparently the cops showed up.
4: And that's how we ended up with the restraining order. The restraining order against
3: me. Mm-hmm. Which,
4: of course, didn't
2: make me any friends.
3: That was, that was probably the, the low point in the whole thing.
2: I didn't know any of this stuff before, about the police coming, the restraining order, and really, it just keeps going.
4: He gave me a scare.
2: There's the story of the actual divorce proceedings.
3: I think it took, a, you know, close to a year.
4: He called me and said, just so you know, I'm not going to sign us.
2: The day when my mom apparently called all the local paramedics on duty to show up in the courtroom. She was
3: working this crazy job on the ambulance.
4: He had his five spirited crazy people and I had probably 15 uniformed
2: men. There was the question of whether my parents might move away from each other.
3: For a little while, she was making noises about leaving the area.
2: Or whether they could date other people.
4: He said, I want to have some say in who is living with my children.
2: It's pretty rare that their stories directly contradict, but they don't really match either. They focus on different moments or different details details that align with the way they see the world.
4: Oh, it's so weird, Ian.
2: I'm not going to psychoanalyze your mom. (laughs) All of us have ways that we deal with uncomfortable truths. For my dad, I think that means downplaying, understating, or simply forgetting the parts that don't sit right or that he doesn't want to say out loud. For my mom... I think it's more about dramatizing and embellishing, making the whole thing into such a great story that you can almost forget what it even means. I know these behaviors well because I do them too. They're things I learned from my parents that they probably learned from their parents.
3: In retrospect, I, I respect your mother for ending the marriage when she did because it, it wasn't easy. For, for anybody involved, you know, but she, she felt like this is what she had to do to uh, make it right. But at the time I was pretty, uh, pretty devastated. And I, I think part of it had to do with the fact that, that you and Sebastian were the, just about the same ages as Eric and I were when, when our parents divorced
4: I mean that was his experience cuz he went through, you know, multiple stepmothers and you know, and, and there was no hints of a family unit, you know.
3: Uh both of us tried to our best to not repeat the mistakes that my parents made, you know. And that's again, that's a very low bar.
2: I mean in in hindsight, I'm uh Yeah, I'm really grateful that you guys split up when you did and went on to choose your own lives and your own homes and your own partners again. And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, when I look at, you know, the children of other marriages that held on bitterly, you know, that did stay together for the kids. Yep. The end result doesn't actually look better to me, it often looks worse.
3: Yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. No, because because you spend all that time growing up having this terrible behavior model for you, you
2: know,
4: like I lived that with my parents.
2: But what it what it makes me think is you had sort of opposite but mirrored traumas. Yeah. And so it's like when it came to that moment of do we stick this out or do we call it quits? It seems in a way you were both trying to avoid what your own parents had done.
4: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, exactly. no, I think that's very accurate, but because they were opposite, there was no happy medium, and I just had to hope I was right.
2: do you remember do you remember how Sebastian and I responded to you guys getting divorced? Because I have no memory of this.
3: Well, that's interesting you should mention that. Because that's one of the few scenes that I really can picture. There was a, a therapist there at the Worthington Health Center. Can, can you picture that? Yep. Up, up on the hill in Worthington? Yeah. We brought you guys there to tell you that we were getting divorced. I remember that these tears Just sort of spontaneously popped out of your eyes, (laughs) and you just like—I don't know—I just—it was unlike you because you're you're quite you're you know quite stoic in a lot of ways, but you just like cried instantly, and I, I can still see that now.
4: My fear. Is always like, what awful things are you carting around from both of us that are negative behaviors that you don't even know about, or maybe you do, but you don't realize that they're there, and when you act out on them, will cause harm to your relationship.
2: Yeah. I think about that too sometimes. You know?
4: Yeah, I mean, because it's hard not to become your parents. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Six years ago, I got married. My parents were there, and they both spoke. My dad reading from prepared notes on yellow legal pad
3: Two atoms move to share their electrons on equal terms <laughs>
2: And my mom, riffing her way through an anecdote with totally over-the-top gestures and
4: Huge doe eyes and blink-blink And it's blink blink <laughs> like everyone's playing with the puppies and
2: As always, they were their very different selves It's hard to view your parents' relationship as a mistake when it's the only reason you could possibly exist. But I think I've always known that my parents made mistakes and that given the chance, I would act differently, maybe find a way to express myself more fully or make decisions with more care and compassion. What I really didn't know until now is that they were trying to do the same thing. To avoid the mistakes of their parents, to take the models they'd grown up with and the examples they'd internalized and do better. Calls
1: a clear horizon.
2: At the time I decided to get married, every living relative who had ever been married had also been divorced. My parents, of course, all my aunts and uncles on both sides, my only living great-uncle, my only living grandparent, all had been married and all had been divorced, some twice. To this day, I don't know what made me think I could do better, or even if I knew what better looked like. Is it just ignorance or overconfidence that made me think I could hold this commitment that none of them had? Or is it possible that we can learn from our elders and take a different path? I can't know that yet. But I've been talking. Hello. Hey, Ian. To every one of those relatives who was there that day. How
4: are you? Oh, hi, Ian.
2: Hi. How are you? About their marriages.
4: At that moment, all oh, my friends were getting married. They really thought I would be with him for the rest of my life.
2: And their divorces.
4: Was with me. I think it takes a lot of courage to change the direction of your life. I was
2: just expecting
3: it to be more um, fulfilling.
2: Just like with my parents. There are pieces of these stories I knew already.
4: There was so much compensating, really, on both sides, for the other person not being the person that you really wanted them to be.
2: But many pieces that I didn't.
3: I get very cold. I I I withdraw.
2: And there are other pieces. Pieces that I've been carrying around with me this whole time, even if I didn't know it.
4: Oh, God, marriage really doesn't mean a thing to me. I didn't want to pass that legacy on to my kids. They did a lot of stuff to fuck you up, but you also get gifts. You sort of start to feel like you're good and sufficient reasons. Maybe they really weren't so good and sufficient for who you actually become.
2: These are the conversations I'll be sharing in the rest of the series. It's called Forever is a long time. In part two, I talk to my grandmother about her marriage, the one my father described as a very low bar, the one he was trying desperately not to repeat.
1: I a alive sing
0: That was part one of Forever is a Long Time by Ian Koss. Stay tuned after the break for my conversation with Ian about that song you just heard, the forge in the back of his dad's truck, and that unexpected feeling of gratitude for his parents' divorce. Family Ghosts
2: will continue in
0: a moment. The song that you perform, the refrain is...
2: Will you do me the favor Yes, and watch for this behavior? Yes. Because, yeah, it comes back later.
0: It comes back later, right. And I loved the choice to end with songs. And I'm curious what made you feel like that was uh, uh, the way that the kind of exclamation point that you wanted to put on these episodes.
2: Or is it a question mark?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, question mark would be a more appropriate form of, of punct or an ellipsis maybe.
2: <laughs> an ellipsis, yes, I think that's exactly it.
0: Where did the songs come from? Were they all inspired by the conversations that you had? Were, they, were, any, did it, were any of them pre-existing? How, tell me about that.
2: It actually began with music Mm. before I even conceived of the idea of interviewing all my family members and editing it into a podcast. I had a batch of songs I was working on. And songwriting for me is definitely a way of like kind of plumbing the subconscious a little bit of like taking whims and momentary um, uh, fantasies and kind of like letting them play out. And I don't know exactly why or what started it, but I did start to amass this body of material that all kind of... It was like I was writing a breakup album, but I wasn't breaking up. But I was thinking about why people break up and how how relationships that kind of develop over a long period of time and, and unwind and, un, and fall apart. And so it's for some reason, that's what set me towards, well, maybe I could... Um, Pair these with something, and, and then in the process of doing that, it's it sort of um flipped upside down, and now it feels primarily like a documentary with music woven into it. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. What that means for the whole is that the songs all predate the interviews. None of the songs are written about mm-hmm. the stories mm-hmm. in the show. Okay, I think of it more of like a cheese and wine pairing or something. It's not a uh, <laughs> It's right. not a a, dissection, a musical dissection of the story.
0: Right, yeah. Well, the best documentaries do feel like a rich meal, not just mm-hmm. narr- narrative broccoli, you know, or educational yeah. broccoli.
2: I felt most comfortable with broaching it with my parents. Mm-hmm. For the simple reason that the story of their divorce is also the story of my childhood. Yeah. And in that way, I felt, um, I don't know, entitled feels a little too strong, but I felt like it, it, it was my story too. And I had a, you know, I had a right to ask about it and to know what happened.
0: You actually say that line in the episode, which I found really striking. You said, I felt like I had a right to know. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when... Yeah, I don't
2: know if that comes across as too strong, but...
0: Um, no, no, I, I think I just, I fastened onto it because having made now two episodes of Family Ghosts telling very personal stories about my own family, I have been, I guess another thing I sort of tell myself to help myself sleep at night is <laughs> that same thing that you say explicitly in the show, which is, well, this is my story too, and I I have a right to know my story and to tell and interpret my story in the way that i choose but i'm curious what was their response when you started reaching out to them to ask about doing these interviews and then yeah as they have to whatever extent they've heard the project as it's taken shape how has that do you think informed their reactions to it
2: the only resistance i got from any of my family members was uh from my father, which you hear in the first episode. Yeah. And that was really the only time that I ever pushed, I guess, to, mm-hmm. to ask those questions and to hear that story. After that, I was struck again and again as I reached out to family and everybody was like, Sure, let's talk. Yeah. Um, and one after another, I mean, the conversations we had just reached a, a kind of intimacy with them. Partly because I was doing all this mid-pandemic, you know, I didn't see these relatives, most of them, for over a year. And yet we had these really intimate conversations about things that we just never talked about.
0: One of the things I think about frequently with Family Ghosts is people always want to know, how do you get people to talk to you for this? You're asking them to reflect on and speak openly about such sensitive topics. And it's true that is... A, an obstacle sometimes, a sensitivity that I try to maintain in, in doing the work. But I think something people don't think about maybe is that it cuts both ways because mm-hmm. what you're also doing in asking people about this stuff is giving them an opportunity to express themselves yeah. about something that maybe they've never had a chance to do mm-hmm. before or or to think about it as part of a story rather than just an intense experience or to look back on it in conversation with somebody who they know will be compassionate. And that is not exactly a common opportunity. Most people in their lives, outside of maybe a therapist or a spouse or partner, if you're fortunate, don't get the opportunity to mm-hmm. to sit in reflection in that way.
2: I did this uh, audio series once that was all stories of addiction. Mm-hmm. I was working with this theater company, and they would interview people about their lives and experiences and then adapt them into short audio plays mm-hmm. and i remember as part of it we played back the stories for the people whose lives they are based on and one of the women who we whose story we told i mean it was this heart-wrenching story about uh, her mother had essentially kind of like gotten her addicted to pills at a very young age mm-hmm. um as a way of kind of like parenting essentially mm. managing her and uh and just had this really gut-wrenching relationship that ultimately ended up with them just like severing ties entirely and what she told us after she heard the story is like you know obviously this is a a really intense dark traumatic period of her life and hearing it back as art was like really heartwarming for her It, it just it allowed her to to see her own story in a new light that it is this like you know weight that she carries around but now it's also a piece of art in yeah. the world
0: one of the things i think is important about getting that feedback is that it reminds you that in doing this work you you have to draw these narrative lines that you yeah. would not draw as a member of a family and yeah. you have to do this odd work of establishing people in your life who are family members or or friends or loved ones Mm-hmm. as characters <laughs> who will yeah, right. perform certain storytelling functions. And yeah, exactly. I'm curious to know, uh, well, first I want to ask you about one of my favorite details from actually very early in the episode that folks will have just listened when they, to when they hear this, which is the the detail about your dad keeping the forge in the back of his truck. Uh, sure. I I love that detail so much, and I have a thought about, well, I can tell you what it meant to me to hear about it in the context of the full episode, but first tell me why you chose that detail.
2: Well, the the details, some of the details I was trying to draw out about my parents mm-hmm. were these facets of their lives that as I say in there, I take for granted, mm-hmm. seem sort of inevitable to their being, but in fact are just like things that happen to happen. Largely because they fell into this relationship with each other. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. My father was not like a horse person growing up. He had no, uh, you know, driving desire to work with horses. He had been working in construction when I was very young. And uh, my mom, who was teaching horseback riding at the time, pointed him towards, hey, maybe you should learn to become a farrier. It's, you know, it's a Mm -hmm. similar kind of trade. You work with your hands uh, you can run your own business, but the, the work is a little bit more steady because you just have your clientele of horse owners. And you can just sort of make the rounds and mm-hmm. um, trim the hooves and put on new shoes and do that work. So the fact that he was and is to this day a farrier is just one of these paths that he mm-hmm. happened to go down because of the way his relationship with my mother unfolded. Um, I think that's how I arrived at the image of the forge, this very particular aspect of him yeah, that uh, could have not happened at all, but it did.
0: That's interesting, yeah. Uh, and And it's cool to hear about the fact that the work that he did and still does, it sounds like, is something that he found through his relationship with your mom, which I don't think is explicitly said in the episode, but makes sense nope. based on the way that we come to know them in the story. Yeah. I have to tell you though, Ian, I think it also serves this <laughs> other really wonderful metaphorical function. Tell me about it. Uh, this is great. He I get a strong sense of your dad as somebody who maybe believes that he can bend situations to his will, in a sense. Like mm. a forge is something that you use to to bend metal into a, a functional shape, right? And yeah it's so striking the scene where he talks about, he and your mom have this physical altercation and he leaves and he calls her, he tries to get her to not call the cops and then he leaves and calls the house and and tries to kind of make the whole thing go away and it doesn't yeah work out that way for him. But the idea that he is a person who thinks maybe he can bring to bear that kind of, Mm. molding or shaping on a situation rhymes really nicely with the forge image
2: yeah that's interesting yeah i mean i I don't think i deployed it as a deliberate metaphor Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but i see that i see what you're talking about and um not only in his story but so many of these stories there is this real feeling on the part of some of my family members that they can kind of they can bend this situation Uh or bend this person and it never really happens yeah
0: did did this process of turning your parents into characters for the story change the way that you think about them in your dealings with them in your own life
2: I do think it's changed a little bit and if if anything it's gone from a kind of failure mindset to a course correction mindset, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I think instinctively I have always thought of divorce as a failure, yeah, as a marriage that failed, um that maybe could have been saved if people had acted a little bit more thoughtfully. So one of the questions I was going into these conversations with was like, okay, where did they go wrong and how could I avoid that mistake for myself, right? Like how can I not go wrong where they went wrong and and not get divorced like they got divorced and then in hearing the stories of my parents but also my grandparents and my aunts and my uncles in so many cases it really seems like the marriage was the mistake and the divorce was the better the better decision of the two Um, (laughs) or just that there's sort of a a a more productive way of looking at divorce which is somebody taking their lives into their own hands and Mm -hmm. And making a change and taking something that's not working uh, that's harmful or toxic and and changing it
0: I just love what you're saying about this so much. I mean the takeaway i'm I'm getting from it is that maybe the lesson of your project is to always be mindful of the choice and agency we have in setting our the course of our relationships and that just because it was a mistake to get married does not mean we have to make the continued mistake of staying together. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my, my dad said at one point, you know, who's to say, you know, if you are married for 10 years and you have 10 really healthy, productive, happy years, and then it, it's no longer serving you both and you split up, like, who's to say that's a failure?
0: Yeah. Oh, I find that very, uh, I find that very affecting.
2: But I also, uh, you know, I would be lying if I said I don't have any kind of r- romantic investment in the idea of a lifetime partner. And, you know, when I made my vows to my wife to be together and to grow and change together for a lifetime, I meant those, you know, very seriously. Yeah. And so I don't mean to undercut that, but it's also good to allow ourselves to be wrong and to admit that we were wrong. Because that's so much of what divorce is. is It's like a very public acknowledgement that this huge decision, this kind of life altering decision you made was not the right decision and you're gonna go a different way. And that does take a lot of courage.
0: Ghosts is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. All five episodes of Forever is a Long Time are available now, wherever you listen to podcasts, and I couldn't recommend them more highly. If you want to hear more of my conversation with Ian about creating the series, you can find a much longer version of it in our Patreon feed, which you can access for just $5 per month at patreon.com slash familyghosts. If you're not a member already, I hope you'll consider joining. In addition to bonus episodes like that longer episode with Ian, you also get ad-free versions of all of our stories. But if you don't have the means to join the Patreon, no worries. Thank you for listening, and please consider supporting the show in a different way, by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds of your life and make a huge difference in the life of family ghosts. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Louis Guerra. Special thanks this week to Mark Pagan for putting Ian and me in touch. You can find the full Family Ghosts archive at familyghostspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at famgoshow. That's F-A-M-G-H-O show. We'll be back in two weeks with an all-new episode of Family Ghosts where every house is haunted. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then.